0: When we think of our way of choosing in this life, whatever it may be, if maybe you're hiring someone, or maybe you're, maybe you're picking a team to root for, or you're on the lookout for a spouse, or maybe you have been uh, on uh, the search for the right home, we always pick the best, or we seek to, we, at least the best from which we can uh, afford, or which is within a lot of uh, you know, options that we have. And why wouldn't we? It seems a pretty natural way to go about things, getting the best that you can with the options that are available. But this morning, again, Paul wants to put before us that God's ways are quite different from our own, and our way of thinking doesn't work or compute well with the thinking of the kingdom. And so let us begin this morning first by seeing this reality of our fighting for affirmation, fighting for affirmation. In order to understand our immediate text and its concerns, especially its concerns about boasting that hopefully you've heard that repetition this morning, you have to understand a little bit of the wider context of 1 Corinthians. We mentioned it last week, but Paul makes plain by what he addresses both prior to our text and then immediately after our text that uh, there is a problem in the church and in particular a problem concerning divisions in the church. And these divisions, you will remember, are based on where one places one's pride, what they boast in. I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. You know, people are putting, if you will, their stakes on the best guy. You see, in the culture of Corinth, as we mentioned before, there is this thirst for honor and for public recognition, this need to be recognized and to be thought of as worthwhile in the, cultural eye, uh, in the cultural's eye it, it is behind a lot of what is going on in the church at Corinth and a lot of what fuels their communal problems, one with another. Corinth is the home, as we mentioned, of, of the new rich. People who have traveled from all over. To come to a place where there was a burgeoning economy, and one could really stake their claim and make a name for themselves, and hopefully come out of it wealthier, wiser, and more uh, thought of, more uh, thought of well. See, it wasn't uncommon with this newfound wealth to also seek newfound honor. So if you look at this time period, you would see that many of the buildings and different projects would be named of the name of the one who gave uh, funding for that project. And so there's all these people uh, earning, you know, new money, and then they're trying to also stake a claim for honor and reputation by saying, well, I'll fund that building or all, you know, uh, supply or, or support this project. And the same went for what was going on culturally concerning their entertainment. As we briefly spoke on last week, you know, they didn't have professional football teams. They didn't have, you know, uh, live live rock and roll uh, shows or a movie theater to go to. And so they would go and stand either in front of the temple or go to the forum and listen to these men debate, these sophists who would, you know, get in these dialogues one with the other and you would choose your guy. I'm for this guy, I'm for that guy. Uh, And it was such a popular thing that these newly rich would then also give financial funding to the person they preferred the most. They became benefactors, if you will, for their team, Uh, which is why Paul will say later in Corinth, I'm glad I didn't take money from any of you, because again, the church was living in the same way as the culture. Oh, you think that's the best speaker? Well, I think Apollos is the best. I think Paul's the best. And I'm going to give for his cause in the church, and they're starting to do things just like the culture, culture around them might do it. So while you and I might wear a jersey of our favorite team and cheer them on, they would pick their favorite speaker and cheer them on. Uh, one wrote of that time period, Deochre System, uh, one could hear crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another. And their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another. They would ridicule one another, and the followers, in so doing, would cheer them on as they did. So, well, here too, in the church, um, those in Corinth have been uh, affected by this wider cultural milieu. Paul baptized me. Oh, really? Cephas baptized me, which is why Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And then he lists a whole bunch of people that he baptized, but that's neither here nor there. Paul also says, I'm glad I didn't take your money because it's supporting this wrong-headed way of thinking. And again, it's not that baptism is wrong or supporting the ministry is wrong, but their way of using it, you'll notice, was for boasting and self-promotion. They were trying to unite themselves to something that they felt gave them more stock and trade concerning their reputation and respect and public honor. One author writes, The believers in Corinth were thus accustomed to measuring and valuing themselves, one another, and the apostles against the standards which they learned from birth in their education in a Greek city. They learned to value impressive speech, beauty of form, spiritual virtuosity, and evidences of power. They brought their standard of what is honorable and valuable with them into the church and have not yet abandoned them in light of their encounter with the Messiah, crucified in weakness and raised in power. Well, we see what happens in Corinth because of this. It led to all sorts of quarreling and jealousy and a culture of boasting and self-inflation amidst God's people. And of course, this idea of boasting is key for us in our text this morning. You see, we boast and brag about, we promote that which we define ourselves by. We brag about things that we want others on the outside to think of us. You know, we don't boast in things that we want people to forget or ignore, right? We hide those things. You know, no one goes around saying, you know, I have the strongest halitosis in church. Uh, You know what my greatest strength is? The size of my debt. That's, uh, That's what really sets me apart. Where I'm disliked by all of my children, every single one of them, and I have quite a few. You know, we boast of the things that we find appealing about ourselves and that we want our identity to the outside world to know us by. And we boast about the things, you know, that we post on our socials, right? When you see me, see this. When you think of me, think this about me. You know, I'm the kind of guy that loves his family so much and is so together that we all wear the same pajamas. I mean, that's what we want, right? The world to think. I don't understand that trend, but apparently it means something good about you. Um, you know, we post uh, you know, the, the pretty pictures of our family. We post about the vacations we go on. We, we post our successes and our children's successes. Rarely do you see someone posting about their life falling apart in great and gory detail before the watching world because we want people to think well of us and we want to be named by the things that we find appealing. Well, it's a big deal for Paul because what we boast in we find our acceptance by, our affirmation, or in biblical terms, what we boast in is our righteousness. It is our wisdom. It is our redemption. Now, You may not think you do that. Uh, it's not how we speak. But when you say, this thing is what makes me acceptable, you're saying, this is my righteousness. This is what makes me better than those folks that's your wisdom. This is what's going to save me. Well, that is your redemption. We may not say it like it, but it's there written all over our lives. I mean, where are you most tired or or stressed or anxious? Because right there is where your righteousness is at stake. The reason those things keep you up at night, because you're basing your life on that thing. Your acceptability is partly premised on that thing you're so scared of losing. What things when said about you will you fight to the death to defend or argue against? I mean, what things, if someone disagrees with you about, causes an immediate surge of anger or frustration or the ability to just dismiss that person altogether? I mean, what separates you from those who don't get it? I mean, what are you smug about? What are you counting on for your happiness? Because that is your righteousness and your wisdom and your sanctification and your redemption. I mean, our whole life, when living in the wisdom of this age, is a war to justify ourselves. To show that we're the right kind of people. To be okay in our own eyes and, Lord willing, in the eyes of others. I mean, T.S. Eliot wrote wisely, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. That's a full-time job, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, the Corinthians believing and working... uh, on becoming something. The the Corinthians' way of believing and working is based on becoming something in the eyes of the culture they live in, or also in the eyes of one another, to be important in their own community. And according to Paul, it's causing great harm. Because they need to be okay, other people need to be put down. Because they want to be first They get jealous when others succeed because it says something about their own worth and their own place, right? The famous uh, Gore Vidal quote, you know, when any one of my friends succeeds, something inside of me dies. (laughs) Uh, Because they think well of themselves, they ignore and avoid and step on those who are perceived lower than them in the body. I mean, you see it most in particular, right, at the Lord's Supper in this text, but that is the reality of our life in this world. We're fighting for affirmation. We want something to brag about. We want something to be known for. And we want that to, of course, be a positive thing where people think well of us. Well, Paul wants to come with an honest assessment in our text. So while the Corinthians and we are fighting, if you will, to justify our lives, Paul wants to disabuse us uh, of our false notions concerning ourselves. But he does it. And I want you to hear me here again if uh, we're staying on this topic of, you know, converse Christianity or the backwards ways of God. Paul wants to bring us down so that we can be happy and free. (laughs) He wants to, if you will, humiliate us and show us for who we really are for the sake of joy, not merely for humiliation. And he does so by saying this. You'll remember last week he said, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And notice how he grounds this statement because consider yourselves. He's like, we know God's foolishness is wise and his weakness is strength because look at you. He says, not many of you were wise by worldly standards or powerful by worldly standards. Not many of you were noble born, but God chose the fools and the weak and the low and despised in the world's eyes. I mean, Paul comes to the church with, that's on a quest, you know, to make a name for themselves according to the standards of their own culture, and he names them And it's not all that pretty. (laughs) Uh, It's not how we would name ourselves, uh, given the opportunity. He brings this assessment, and he does so as the beginning, if you will, of good news. It's not good news, but it's the beginnings of good news, even though it doesn't feel that way immediately. See, at one level, we all know he's telling the truth. Don't we? I hope we do. We'll see in a minute here. I mean, in our quest to be someone at work or in the church or at school or just in this life in general, every now and then, you know, the reality of who we are pops up. We've, we try to press it down like a, like a beach ball in a pool, and every now and then our real selves pop to the surface and other people see it and we can't hide it. Or situations come up where we are exposed as not as strong as we thought we were, not as wise as we imagined ourselves. Someone else outshines us so clearly that we're exposed as small. Or we do something so stupid that we can't lie even to ourselves about it. It's just too raw. Or we fail ethically in such a way that even we feign surprise. Or all of our schemes have fallen short and we're left needy and having to look to others for help. I mean, those sorts of things are God's kind way of reminding us of who we are. And when that happens, we experience exposure, right? And when we experience exposure, when we're shown for who we are, what's the immediate result? Is shame, right? We're, We've been shown to be naked. We've been shown to be who we are, and shame is the immediate result. We've been fighting so hard to present ourselves as honorable that it's hard when we get exposed for what's really there. And of course, once that happens, we are on a pretty tough mission. We all engage upon it, whether you know it or not. When the law of our life shows us for who we are, we immediately get busy. We either try to fix the thing, right? So we've done this, we'll solve the problem so it won't be a problem anymore, or we bury it, we'll just ignore it or act like it didn't happen, or, or move, or find new friends, or do whatever you have to do to have it not be something that comes up in your, 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 your daily thinking. Or we do this thing that we always do, we, we rename the bad thing as good just so we can live with ourselves. But we meant to do it that way. <laughs> it was our plan all along. But God tells us through this text that the thing you've been hiding from for so long is actually good news at one level. Because according to Paul, if you're weak and foolish and sinful and lost, well then you are God's cup of tea. Those are the only kinds of people He chooses. Even those who may be strong or wise or fool or powerful have to acknowledge their weakness and folly to get into the front door. God reverses our natural assumptions about who is first and best and who will be blessed. And this backwards way of God is so clear and so clearly ludicrous to us that it's hard to stomach. It's hard to place ourselves exactly where God has named us. But sometimes he's good enough to us that he shows us as naked and ashamed so that we we can identify there more readily. Even Celsus, for a second century philosopher, a very uh, pronounced opponent of Christianity, wrote mockingly of the church because he'd heard Paul's teaching. He's read about what the, the New Testament writes. He hears what the, what the church is promoting. Listen to what he says. This is the church's call. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near." But as for anyone ignorant or anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who was a child, let him come boldly. Notice his assessment. By the fact that they themselves admit that these kinds of people are worthy of their God, they show that they are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid and only slaves, women, and children will join. No offense to uh, the women and kids in here. Uh, he said it, not me. Uh, so notice what he says. He says, uh, You know, you brag about letting in the foolish and the unwise. He says, All that shows is that's the only people you can dupe into believing to a, 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 in, in a God that accepts those kind of people. I mean, nothing's changed. Ted Turner said at the American Humanist Association, You know, quote, Christianity is for losers. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> uh, I mean, the bad, it's bad news. It is bad news unless, of course, you're defeated or dejected or you have been set aside in this world or you've shown yourself and others that you're a failure. And the bottom line is that's all of us if we'll take a moment to consider it. And yet God, in His mercy, continually is willing to expose. He shows as nothing our wisdom and strength. I mean, if you think you're strong and wise and righteous and so forth, I mean, if you feel that you really can prop yourself up above other people, ask yourself this question, what if everyone in the church knew everything about you. Everything, with no varnish at all. I mean, the stuff you do behind closed doors, the stuff you do behind the closed door of your own mind and in your own heart. I mean, some of us clean up good, at least better than others, but God sees and God knows. I mean, the bad news is you aren't who you think you are. The good news is God loves that. I mean, that's right where he meets people. He's for the weak and the needy and the foolish. I mean, those who God calls confess their unworthiness in light of what the cross says about them. And the cross does testify something about your life. All your best stuff, everything you're banking on, all the stuff that you think might separate you from others, that's where it led even that could not get, uh, get God's son out of having to be crucified in your stead. Whatever it is you think you're giving uh, for the world's gain died on a bloody cross, insufficient to meet God's standard, insufficient to give you a righteousness or a wisdom that would last. That says something about us that our merits are minimal, but it also says something about God that his love is great. sinners. That's why Paul says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. Paul says, God only calls fools and unwise and so on and so forth. And he says, and those who can see things as they are, those who can hear all those terms and say, that's me, he says, those who judge themselves rightly won't come under judgment. Because that's true, As we get back to our topic, God allows life to strip away your strength and your wisdom and your perceived virtue, all the things that you depend on, all the things that you might be tempted to boast in and have any kind of sufficiency uh, and pride in because he loves you. I mean, oftentimes that's where sanctification and God's grace is taking place. All those things that you think, this is what makes me respectable and worthwhile, God will expose at some point, as not the case, and Lord willing, will give us the grace to repent even of our best supposed deeds. Uh, Many of you know how much uh, I appreciate Flannery O'Connor, but in particular, uh, of a great fondness for her story, Revelation, uh, in the end of her second book of short stories. Uh, And you'll remember uh, Mrs. Turpin is this kind of self-satisfied, lower-middle-class white woman who's always had just enough and the good sense to know what to do with it, you know? She's just a good, down-to-earth, virtuous person, doing the best she can with what the Lord's given her. And of course, throughout the story, we see that anyone who's satisfied with themselves like that also treats others pretty terribly, even if they can't perceive it. But she has this vision at the end of the story, and it's revealing to her and should be to us. It says, she saw the streak as a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. And so there's this bridge going up into the air from earth to heaven. And she says, upon it was a vast horde of souls rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives bands of blacks and white robes, battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others, with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing an on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. You see, until we realize that the things that we're hanging on the most in ourselves, the things that we find to be our virtues, even until we realize that those things are insufficient in God's sight, they don't give us any more wisdom or righteousness or anything else, until we realize that our virtues are going to be burned up, we will always have this same unfortunate self-satisfaction. I mean, why would God want us to see this? Why would God want to strip away these things from our life? Mainly so that you would have no mistake, that you wouldn't be mistaken at all about where your power comes from and where the glory for your life lands, so that your whole life would be in naked confidence in the mercy of God. And so as we close this morning, I want us to see finally radical acceptance. Radical acceptance. Notice what Paul says, God does all this so that no human being may boast in his presence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then he goes on to say that Christ has become for us our wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Our whole life, we're clawing for acceptance the only way that we know how, by finding something to hang our hat on. Some way to get one up on the next guy. And with that, we live our whole lives in fear of being exposed for what we know we actually are deep down, even if we've done pretty well at putting on some sort of show on the outside. But with the good news of the gospel and our calling is simply this that God deals with us on the basis of who He is, not on the basis of who we are. Now, I need you to hear that. God deals with us on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of who we are, that God delights to say yes to the people that the whole world says no to. He loves it, gets a kick out of it. His love for us is based on things that are wholly outside of us. Notice that Christ is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification. And while that is humbling, it's also great. There is good news in that message I mean, uh, I grew up watching, uh, well, TV in general, almost everything on it. But in particular, uh, uh, aside from a couple other sitcoms I love, Gilligan's Island, if you remember it, and so many times, so many times you had thought that they were about to be saved. There would be, you know, some ship that they would see or a plane would fly over. There was these, all these events were almost, you know, and then they would get, start working up all the uh, ways of sending a signal But one thing was clear is that they were stranded. And unless help came from the outside, they were never getting off. And that's exactly what God brings to us in this gospel that Paul is preaching is that if you're looking for any kind of salvation or righteousness, you can't be looking for it in yourself. You are exiled there forever. But if there is help coming from the outside, then there is good news indeed. You see, we use our scale and assume it's God's scale as well. We judge our worth according to the law. And if not God's law, at least according to the law of our culture, what do they think of me? But God's choosing, you'll notice, is lawless. And if God was choosing based according to the law, if he came, if he was incarnated based on the law, he would be coming for revenge. <laughs> and yet he comes to seek and save sinners. And so with that, he has smashed our grid. He has upended our way of making sense of both his ways and making sense of how to live in this world, which means we're going to need to hear him if we're going to understand at all how to live here well and joyfully. You know, many hear this and they think, you know, it's pretty gloomy and negative. I mean, uh, a little depressing, A little self-esteem crushing. Shouldn't we be a little more affirming uh, of who we are? Um, But remember what we said last week. God's work is always unattractive to us by nature. It doesn't make immediate sense to us. And while we want things that are pleasant and affirming, that can't be what comes first because that doesn't save us. Uh, What we've been trying to affirm about ourselves has been leading us closer and closer to condemnation every day of our lives. And so God upends our confidences because he's kind. You see, when you realize you have nothing, when you realize that in yourself before God, you are nothing, the freedom is this. Then you can stop trying to be something. And according to Paul, you can let God be everything on your behalf. And that's what God he says, God says, "Do it. Boast in me. Brag about me." In what way? It says to be wrapped in Christ, hide yourself behind him. Christ has it together, I don't have it together. Christ is a big deal. I'm not a big deal. God says that what you need from top to bottom is found in Christ, that Jesus really is everything on your behalf. He is God's wisdom. He comes crucified on a cross for you. He is your righteousness. You have been justified in Christ once for all. Hear me here. He is your sanctification. It's not that He's your justification and then you're your sanctification. Your holiness is in Christ, finished and given, or as John Murray puts it, received and not achieved. Christ is your redemption, the one who sets you free from slavery. And it's all done, according to Paul. He is these things for you presently. You can't add anything to Christ and what he's done on your behalf. Because if you could, even just a little bit, you know what you would do? (laughs) You'd brag about it. And Paul says, God's doing it this way so that no man can have one word of boasting in my presence. I mean, you've spent all your time trying to become in this life, spending and being spent in order to be noticed, in order to be somebody, all the while forgetting that at one level, you aren't that great. Paul wants you to get a realistic view of yourself. God doesn't choose people who have it together because they don't need him. But then with that realistic view, he he also wants to give you this glorious view that while you aren't that great, you are already someone by faith. You are already righteous. You're already wise. You are already sanctified. You are already redeemed. Our calling was that we weren't those who make the world go round. But what Paul will go on to say, and as we come to a landing this morning, is that our calling condition, the condition in which we were found, is our continued condition in this age until glory. It's not like he came to you and you were weak and needy and unwise, but don't worry, now in your own person apart from Christ, you've totally got your stuff together. Uh, now, you've, you, now you're fixed and you can go about fixing other people. That's not what Paul says. In fact, he is going to rebuke the Corinthian church sorely in chapter four. He says, you know, look, my life is not going that great. I am a spectacle before men and angels. Uh, he says, I'm suffering in all of these ways. And then he starts to mock them. He says, it's interesting that you became kings without us. He says, you're sitting here boasting and you're living, you know, fat and happy, the good life uh, w- w- with no suffering. And you're boasting about all of your achievements. And he said, how did you get to glory before we got there? Your apostles who led you to the faith. And he's trying to convince them that, look, this condition of weakness is our condition until glory. From now until the grave, this will be who we are. And while again that reads to us as backwards and unhelpful, God says that's good. I mean, what if the things you are lacking are the things that should actually be bolstering your assurance more than the things you're professing and holding to? While no safe guide. In matters of Scripture and other things, he's got some good things to say on the subject. But Karl Barth says in this regard, The man with whom we have to do in ourselves and in others, though a rebel, a sluggard, a hypocrite, is likewise the creature to whom his Creator is faithful and not unfaithful. But there is still more. He is the being whom God has loved, loves, and will love because he has substituted himself in Jesus Christ and made himself his guarantee. You see, we should not in this age ever get over our nothingness so that we never get over esteeming Christ above all. Then and only then. Hear me here, and we'll talk about this more in weeks to come. Then and only then can you grow Then and only then can you love other people because you don't need to spend all your time and energy trying to become something for yourself. Your littleness is your strength. And the sooner you get it, the better off you will be. You see, when you realize you are nobody, you can stop trying to be somebody or something and allow God to be everything. So may we find our life in Christ this morning. Let us pray.